because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome college basketball broadcaster Seth Greenberg to the Basketball Podcast. Prior to becoming an analyst for ESPN, Greenberg was a coach for 34 years, the last 22 as a head coach. Greenberg has been the head coach at Long Beach State, University of South Florida, and Virginia Tech. He was a two-time ACC Coach of the Year and has had a significant impact on the game of basketball. Coach Greenberg, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Coach, so many places to go. I mean, incredible coaching career and now a great analyst and uh, enjoyable to listen to you. And I'm just wondering, I mean, as a group, fans seems to be a little bit more educated. Players, certainly coaches, more educated because of technology. Do you find you can get a little bit more in-depth with some of the technical, tactical knowledge that you share because of that on the broadcast? Yeah, at times. It all depends on what platform you're on. Obviously, if you're on a game and you actually see something, you can illustrate it, you can educate and inform. Uh, that's one thing. And if you're on Sports Center at 7.30 in the morning, probably not so much because people are just waking up. They don't want to really know kind of inside of ropes type stuff. They want big picture stuff. You know, who's going to win by how many? Uh, who's playing well? Why are they playing well? Uh, those type of things. So you, you try to strike a balance. It's, not, it's, it's no different than coaching. It's not what you know. It's what your players know and what they can go out and execute. And it's not what you know, it's what you can communicate to the fans that they can kind of uh, break down and, and digest and enjoy. You know, part of it is entertainment. I mean, you know, you want to keep that audience and you want to kind of inform and entertain. And that's kind of your main focus, inform and entertain. Uh, going deeper during the games, a little deeper during college game day because the people that are watching those broadcasts are probably, uh, you know, more into uh, the hows and whys of things. Going back to our, our coaching careers, coached against you twice when you brought your teams to the University of Windsor there from Virginia Tech. A lot of fun. But um, I'm imagining at that point, just like myself, that you didn't imagine yourself necessarily doing this role. But did you always kind of align with the possibility of being this type of analyst? Well, I was a broadcast journalism major in college, which means nothing, quite honestly, because uh, I'm not sure I use any of that in, in terms of uh, what I do on a daily basis. But it sounds good, if nothing else. You know, I thought at one time I would be eventually, you know, do something that like I'm doing. I didn't expect it at that time, to be honest with you. I was excited about the team I had coming in. I had Montrez Harrell coming in. I had Dorian Finney-Smith returning. I had Darrell Eddy, who played in the NBA, or Green, who played in the NBA. I thought I was going to have a really good team. Uh, but there are certain things out of your control. So uh, once uh, I got let go, I had, you know, I had three daughters, uh, you know, one that was in, still in college, one that was uh, about ready to go to college. So uh, I thought maybe that this would be an avenue to pursue. Although, you know, at the bottom, you know, in my heart of hearts, I still perceive myself as just a, a coach talk ball. Well, and I love that. And that's how you come across for sure. And that's why I think so many coaches align with listening to you. It's really enjoyable from that perspective. And, uh, you know, w when you were coaching uh, through your career, did you have some favorite analysts to listen to? Uh, for me, for example, Hubie Brown. Wouldn't want to miss a game that Hubie Brown was on. Was there any that, any that stood out for you? 
Yeah, Coach Brown, you know, someone I kind of grew up with. I grew up in the five-star camp, and, uh, you know, the first lecture I ever heard was from Coach Brown. The reason I probably wanted to get into coaching is uh, listening to him and hearing him impact me and saying, wow, that would be a cool thing. And then I played for a really good high school coach uh, named Irwin Stewart. He had a great impact on me. I played for the great Lal Ababo, who was Knight's assistant at Army, who was one of the architects of volume and defense and uh, that's really the reason I went to Fairleigh Dickinson is uh, because he was such a good tactician and a teacher. I thought, you know, what can set yourself apart if I want to get into a career in coaching? So, yeah, I'd say Coach Brown is one. Jeff N. Gundy is one uh, that, you know, he doesn't pull punches, tells it like it is. Uh, you know, I think uh, some of those guys, quite honestly, the guys in the NBA are the most interesting to listen to because maybe I grew up with them. One of the unique things about your position now is that you get access uh, to, you know, to coaches and practices and insights. Can you share some of the ideas that maybe you've learned, maybe some of the best ideas that you've learned that may help us as coaches? You know, I, I, everyone's different. I mean, I think the first and foremost, you got to find figure out how, figure out a system that can put you in position to be the best team in your league. And then figure out a system that matches your team's personnel. Uh, and then figure out a system that matches your community, the players you're going to, you're going to get on a yearly basis if you're coaching in high school uh, that that fits your community. Uh, I think that's a big thing. I think, you know, obviously in college you get a chance to kind of have the agility to change. And coaching is the essence of coaching to me is putting players in position to play to their strengths, building a system that fits your person, your, you know, your personnel and your skill set. Offensively and defensively, you know, uh, coaching can't be like fashion. You know, fashion changes every year. You know, I remember back in the day, Judd Heathcote wins with a 2-3 matchup zone. Everyone to play 2-3 matchup zone. And Rick Pitino wins with, you know, matchup press, and everyone thinks they're going to match up press and shoot threes. You know, the NBA analytics tell us, you know, threes, layups, and free throws. That sounds great. You don't have NBA players. You know, so, you know, if you get a, getting a good shot in a, in a high school or a college is as good as, as anything you could do. You know, you know, like, so well, you got to shoot, you know, 40% of your shots for free. Not if you don't have good three-point shooters. So, uh, you know, I think that a couple things, you know, I do. I get a chance to, you know, go to the best practices in college basketball. You know, this fall, I probably went to 25 practices. Uh, you know, I go every game day, I sit and I watch both teams practice. Uh, I think that you know, the most important part of coaching uh, outside of the X's and O's is, is connecting with your team. You know, I always say the hardest playing toughest team finds a way to win. How do you become that hardest playing toughest team? Those guys got to play for you. The best coaches are really good communicators. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that they're kissing anyone's rear end either. I'm saying that they connect with their players so they can coach them hard, but that their players have trust in them and believe in them and want to be coached hard because they know they can help them get somewhere they can't get themselves. So I think, you know, the, the best coaches, what I've watched overall, is have real relationships with their players. It's not how you're doing good, how you're feeling good, how's your family good, you know, how your class is going good. No, it's, it's much deeper than that. They have a real connection. And that connection and care enables them to demand and set a standard and have core beliefs that players buy into. Uh, so I, to me, the first thing, it starts with relationships, relationships and trust. Trust doesn't come with a, a title anymore. Trust is earned. When I played in high school, when I played in college, trust came with a title. You know, Coach Lababo, he was our coach. We were going to trust him. Today, because of all the static that's around players with all the different people that are pulling up from all different directions on players, trust has to be earned. And trust is hard to gain. It's easy to lose and it's impossible to regain. And so you, your word's got to be your bond. But the best coaches uh, have the trust of their teams. And 
uh, and that enables him to coach coach hard. Uh, the second thing is, I think the best coaches just you know throughout are really committed to teaching their guys what to do and why to do it, and then letting them play off of instinct, make plays out of plays, read, react. Uh, but again, it goes to the same thing. It's putting players in position to play their strength. Do you see any challenges in coaches imitating what they see other coaches doing on TV? I see right now the biggest problem in our game is everyone wants to play four and five out. Everyone wants to play quote-unquote positionless. You don't have positionless players. Positionless basketball is not very good. You know, so, you know, it's like everyone wants to play pick-and-roll basketball. If you don't have a guard that can drag two, pick-and-roll basketball is not very good. If you don't have a, dr- a guard that can read the weak side tag, Pick and roll basketball is not very good. If you don't have a guard that if people drop coverage can stick his defender on his rear end and then snake it back or put him in a spot, you know, or you don't have a guy that can roll and catch above the rim or at least make a play so that the weak side has to, you know, shrink a little bit. So, I mean, I I think what happens as coaches, we get all, you know, we watch these games on TV and we see these teams play and we want to play like them. And it sounds great. And it's obviously we study it and we we learn it. And then we run it. And because we don't have the players that fit that personnel, you know, you're you know, you you just you're not effective, not efficient, you know. And and then the same thing defensively. You know, same thing defensively. I mean, you know, you know, I think coaches are are creatures are not just creatures of habit, but 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 information gatherers. Like, you know, you have this spot information gatherers. You can't do everything. It's almost like when we're doing TV, you know, give, you know, give them something to look for in a game. Well, you can't do everything. Well, you know, I guard the ball screen 17 ways. That's great. But you don't guard it one way. Well, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's the don't make the game that difficult. Uh, and I think analysts do it. I think coaches do it. I did it to some extent. Uh, I would be a totally different coach offensively. Look, here's the deal. You have to understand you're going to have to make changes. You have to have agility as a coach. So, you know, you might hard hedge or blitz ball screens, right? So what's your secondary option, right? You might switch. What's your third option? You know, you you know, you know, might switch one through four, you, you know, whatever. You don't need a fourth and fifth option. It's like a low post player. He needs a move and a counter move. You can teach him 17,000 moves, all right? What's his go-to move? What's his counter? Where does he want to catch the ball? Does he want to catch it on the right block or the left block? Does he want to catch it up the lane or off the lane? Uh, does he want to catch it on the move or does he want to catch it off, of, uh, you know, for screen and a shape? That's your job as a coach. But, like, I think at times we make things too difficult. You know, I, I talked to coaches and, you know, I talked to, and I'm not going to mention his name, who he wanted a, one of we, we ran a lot of stuff off of, misdirection of Iverson and stagger action. We we would take the stagger action, we'd twist out of it in terms of screen the screener out of it. We would stagger the 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 staggers and we would slip the second screener and lift up high quick the first screener. We, we did all kinds of stuff. You know, I really need that because I need to get my player X to no you don't you have 17,000 ways to get that guy to ball. What's the best two ways? You don't need a third way. What do you think the best coaches are doing? You know, I think the best coaches keep their players with a free mind, teach them hows and whys and concepts, and then have things in place that put them in position offensively, defensively to play on instinct to play play to their strengths. And it's 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 really that simple. You don't need 17 ways to double the post. You double it off the pass. You double it big to big. You double it, you know, off the, off the weak side of your down. Now, the, 
Are you doubling on the bounce? Great. You know, you know if you can if you can double on the backside and then and, uh, you know that's great. That means you're sweeping in front. Don't make it too difficult. One way and a counterway. And I think the best coaches are pretty much committed to that. And I know, look, the NBA. Oh, they make three changes. In, you know, in the middle of a game of the NBA, those guys have PhDs in basketball. They're the, you know they they prepare for a hundred games a year. All right, they they are your players aren't brilliant. They're just learning how to play. So. Those are some of the things that, you know, I've come across. Uh, you know, I've been so impressed with a lot of coaches. I think the, uh, the last thing would be is don't be afraid to coach your team. I, I see too many guys, oh, they're going to transfer. You know, you know, you know, you know hey, you co-. those dudes ain't helping you win anyway. So coach your team. You know, if, you, if players don't want to allow you to coach them, then they're not helping you win anyway. And if, they're, you know, if you're worried about it, well, you know, if you coach them hard, then, then you don't have a good relationship with them. So. so I want to just highlight is something that you said near the beginning and having to attended so many practices and even on this podcast, it shines through too, is what you referred to as relationships. Talk to us about those mini conversations, because I think that's what's underestimated. Many conversations that you have with players are what build the relationship. And I think Hollywood and all these other places tend to portray it as one big speech, but it's all the mini conversations, isn't it? Oh, 100%. It's, and it's the conversations away from your office. You know, your office is an intimidating place. Uh, you know, some of my best conversations, I used to have a thing where I used to bring two or three players over the house for dinner preseason. And uh, partly, part of it was to let them see how I talk to my wife and treat my children and interact at dinner. The other part was just to go downstairs and BS. Uh, the other part was sometimes if a player was struggling, I'd have, at the end of that, I'd have a highlight film of his, all his best plays and say, hey, this is who I think you are. I don't know who you think you are, but this is who I think you are. Uh, but yeah, taking a walk across campus is always great. Um, and then the conversations that have nothing to do with basketball. You know, I mean, those are the, those are the very best. I mean, in terms of, you know, what's going on in your life? Sit and listen and wait for, you know, an answer. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what's happening? Have you talked to this person or that person or this person getting, getting them to open up and listening so that you can, you can find out more about them. I mean, you know, and the recruiting process is, is obviously available to you, but you really don't get to really know your players until you're with them 24, seven, seven days a week. And it's the conversations that are actually don't include basketball enable you to have the conversations you do include basketball because then they'll listen. So, uh, yeah, those, those, are, those are important things. And, you know, the best conversations are after they graduate, to be honest with you, you know, hearing about their kids and their families and their adventures and where they're playing and the experience that they're having. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, those, those, those behind-the-scenes, one-on-one conversations uh, enable you to coach your team. And you mentioned the evolution of the game a little bit. You mentioned the NBA analytics and the kind of the filter down effect. But I'm curious, have you seen a difference in practices over, say, the last 10 years in terms of the evolution of a practice? Does it seem different? Does it seem the same? Because we know the rise of social media. We know the rise of different educational methods have have somewhat influenced how people design and uh, organize their practices. So I'm curious if you've seen much. Yeah, I think I think uh, practices in general, because you have so much access to your teams in college now. You have them in the summer, which should be skill and concept work and defensive principles, and then you have them in the preseason, which means uh, more you know shooting, skill work, and starting to put in 
concepts. Here, here are things that I would do differently if I was coaching today. Um, I'd go up and down much more because I think you've got to play. If you're going to play out of flow, you're going to have to practice in flow. You can't stop it every two seconds. I'd spend so much more time in special situations because I think in league play where there's a more level playing field, those five-point games are decided on underneath that bounce, side of the bounce, first play of the half, first play, last play of the half, short clock situations, free throw situations. You win those special teams plays, you're going to win your close games. Uh, so even in my mini scrimmages, I would start with the ball underneath that bounce or side of the bounce or whatever. And I wouldn't put it, put it in the end of practice. I'd put all that stuff in the in probably the middle third of practice because everyone knows it's no different than a television show. Everyone knows you put your junk at the end. You know why we put our junk at the end and stuff we're not sure of? Because we can always throw it out. You know, we're having a great conversation on NIL. You know what? That was last that last conversation's out because we went longer in this area. The players understand that too. They understand you have two hours and 15 minutes or two hours, depending on you know your your gym situation. And, and they know, all right, if we get down to special situations, dead ball inbound, side out of bounds, underneath out of bounds, you know what? We're close to the end of practice. You don't have your total attention. But if you put it in an area where they know that, that that's not going anywhere, because what's important to you is going to be important to them. So I would do, I would go more up and down. I would, uh, I basically structure my practice. The first hour of practice, I would do my concept, my skill work, my defensive fundamentals. I would do all my, um, ODOs and 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 four minute scrimmages in the next next segment of practice, and uh, so like even the first hour of practice, you know, I'd be working on stuff defensively, including my my defensive fundamentals that would tie into all my league games, especially preseason, and I might even call the sets or the actions or the concepts after teams that we're going to play. Because that becomes easier when we get into getting ready to play league where we have short turnarounds. But then I, I think you have to go up and down. I just, I just think, and I think, and then, then like especially this time of the year, then you can use your second practice to get in shooting, more special situations, more defensive, intricate in terms of walking through the conceptual, how to guard certain things that that review certain things that you're gonna you're gonna do in that coming game, those coming games, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, p- people are playing with more flow, so people are going up and down more, which is fine. And you can stop it. You know, you can stop it, chart it, edit it, show it. Uh, you know, and 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 handle all those things. Uh, but you, you don't have to stop at every play. Uh, and uh, you know, I was bad at that because you know I'd see something. Now, the best I've ever seen at that was Larry Brown. I'd go to his practices when I was at Long Beach State, and he was at the Clippers. They'd go boop, 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 boop. They'd do three or four minutes. He'd see, he'd see everything. His, his mind was like a computer. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And we always did shooting in pre-practice. I didn't count that as practice. My pre-practice was all skill and concept work. It was about 20 minutes. It was, you know, I started practice after we stretched after pre-practice, when we lathered up a little bit and got it going. I think you've got to have a flow to practice. Uh, quick in and out. You can't, you can't talk for a long time. Bill Self, the pace of their practices are very, very good. Uh, Danny Hurley, uh, the pace of his practices are really good. And because the pace is good, the intensity never wavers. You know, there are no long breaks. If they're long breaks, it's free throw shooting against, you know, 
against the number, then boom, you're right back in. Uh, it's two ends of the court, two baskets with high intensity coaching, coaches involved, and then you go from there. But uh, I think the pace of your practice enables your guys to process stuff quickly. The pace of your practice that makes you guys uh, understand and not take, never get you, if you get alone in your practice, it's hard to you know unplug, plug back in, reboot. I'm curious, are you finding best practices now in terms of balancing coaching them hard and then still coaching them with respect? And uh, what are some insights in terms of helping us understand how to do that better? Yeah, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's no different than, you know, I, I now because of what I do, I go, you know, I, I could disagree with Jay Billis, but it's how you disagree with someone. You know, you can be demanding without you know, being demeaning, uh, you know, but you can't be afraid to coach your guys hard. Like, this has got to be a standard. There's got to be core beliefs and non-negotiables. Playing hard is non-negotiable. Being unselfish is non-negotiable. All right? Uh, whatever your non-negotiables are, you've got to hold your team accountable for. And, like, you can't – it's like parenting. No means no. So if you're going to say, uh, you know – and I know Rick Barnes does a great job of sending the guys to the verse max or, uh, or, you know, to the ropes or whatever. There's got to be a consequence. Uh, you know, hugs used to have the treadmill flying, right? <laughs> Boom, go to the treadmill. You're on there for 20 seconds. There's got to be a message, you know? Uh, so that's the way you don't say anything. Just, I, I joked, I was at SEC Media Day and uh, I said, I asked uh, Santiago uh, Vescovi, uh, you know, give me your best Coach Barnes story. And he just said, go, just go, just go, <laughs> which means basically just go to, go, go to the verse, Max, go. I don't want, I don't, not. Just go. And I mean, there's got to be a consequence. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not what you say. It's how you say it. But I mean, you've got to be like a head coach. You know, Kelvin Sampson says, and I, I, I totally believe the head coach and the, forget about the head coach. Coach staff could never have bad practice. Like, like I, I get a kick out of a guy. Oh, man, I'm so tired. Well, you're tired. Well, how's your team going? You know. If you walk in because you lost the game the day before, and as a young coach, I did this, I was bad. I was so consumed by what happened the day before, I never gave my team my best day. Because I was I was in the past. I wasn't I wasn't ready to move on. As I became an older coach, after we did film, I would literally erase the grease board and say, clean slate, let's go. Let's have a great day. And I think you got to find a way to get to the next play. You tell your players all the time to get to the next play. As a coach, you got to get to the next play, all right? But but you can be demanding, uh, but your choice of words has got to be, you know, it could be as plain and simple as like, that's unacceptable. That doesn't fulfill the standard of what our program is all about. We're not going to be who we want to be if that's the effort you're going to get, all right? And then there's got to be a consequence. So therefore, Vertimax, go, see you. In general, it's better for us and it's better for our players to coach with much more respect and much more, you know, positivity in that light, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, respect is a two-way street. Then they got to respect the game. They got to respect their teammates. Uh, the biggest thing, if you don't have it, you better have a hell of a locker room because mm -hmm. you're only as good as your locker room. Like when I talk to these businesses, I joke around. I say, when we're done, you're all going to go to the bathroom. And you'll, uh, you know, then, then we'll find out how good this talk was. <laughs> you know, I mean, like when those guys go in the locker room, who's your voice? You have, you have the wrong voice in the locker room. You, you, have, you are absolutely screwed. You and know, did you spend time the, developing that as a head coach, developing yeah, that yeah. locker room? Yeah. 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 Or developing a leader. Yeah. You know, you have, you have to know who your voice is. And, and the years that we weren't good, it was, we didn't have a good voice in the locker room. You know, and, and that, that guy's got to have the balls to come to the locker room and say, coach is right. 
You know, we got a practice huddle. We got, hey, you know, we covered that in the scouting report. And then we gave up two points on that underneath that bounce play. You know, coach is right. Like, you know, we're going to cover that. And and he's going to show us exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do and why they're going to do it. Uh, then we've got to be able to take that away. Because, I mean, it really, in, in the end, coaching is defensively is what you're going to give and what you're going to take away. And, like, you know, if you're going to spend time on certain things, then you've got to be, again, you've got to be good at the things you spend time on. So, yeah, you, you've got you've got to be very aware. And that's where I think assistant coaches help. That's where those individual meetings help. Uh, that's where your messaging has got to be consistent. Like your film sessions after a tough loss. You know, I tell people all the time, biggest mistake I ever made was my last year at Virginia Tech. One, I didn't spend enough time in special situations because I started for a freshman and was so concerned about just getting them to compete and play hard that I didn't invest enough time in the end of games. Now, we might not have gotten to those end of games because we did compete and play hard, but we just could close them. Uh, and then we lost at Wake Forest, our first ACC game, in a noontime game where we had a couple of players were complaining that we were the first, we were the first game of, this, of the ACC season on a Saturday at noon. And I had only one upperclassman that year, and that upperclassman was in the locker room whining and complaining about having to play a 12 o'clock game. We don't, yeah, man, we don't play 12 o'clock games. What's this? And uh, he started with four freshmen. I ended up suspended him for a couple of games after that. And I probably was too harsh on that, but I, it was really important for me to get those freshmen to know, you know, what was expected of them. Uh, but, you know, I think it's one of those lessons. I, if I had that to pull back, I probably would have had more of an individual meeting with him and explained to him uh, and given him another chance. Um, but when you only have, like, we only had three upperclassmen, I put a lot on his plate and, you know, it just, that, that given time, he he let that that's the locker room. He let the locker room down. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about immersionvideos.com. Have you checked out immersionvideos.com? Watch a NATO's practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all access practices from Alex Rama. Or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. Immersionvideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to Immersionvideos.com and check it out today. So meeting with players is important. Can you share more about your philosophy behind meetings? I, I probably overmet with my team, if anything. I, I was big on, you know, one-on-ones. But, yeah, I, I would just, like, I, I was big on who are we and how do we win, all right? So in getting those leaders to understand, like, who are we and how do we win, you know, we want to be the hardest play, toughest team. We want to be a team that, you know, takes care of the ball. We want to be a team that is physical. You know, all the things that we want to be, I mean, so that, if we didn't fulfill those core beliefs, if we didn't fulfill the identity, I think identity is immediate. You don't have to be a great team to have an identity. Culture takes time. Right? Culture is, is, is you have to invest in it. You know, identity should be, if you have you know, the right team and you teach it well, you should be that hopefully right from the beginning. Now, you, it could change because, you know, you have to have agility. I think one thing coaches don't do a good enough job is got to have agility. You don't throw everything out. I talked to a good friend of mine who's a hockey coach, and uh, he has a young team right now. 
and they're just and he, he's had tremendous tremendous success and like he's trying to figure out like what he was doing with his older team he couldn't do with his new team and like you know we had this conversation on like if i panic and throw everything out then all of a sudden self-doubt creeps in so i said all right what are the what are the two things you have to do to make the game easier for these new guys. You don't have to change the whole thing. What's the one or two things you have to do? And so you got, as a coach, you got to have agility, but the conversations with your, your leadership group, your, your players, they've got to, they've got to believe in you. They've got to believe in the system and they, they can't be afraid to hold each other. Now the best teams have a team of leaders. You know, I mean, like the very best teams, it's not one, it's not on the plate of one guy or two guys. It's guys usually that are invested in the program that all can say, hey, when we do X, Y, and Z, we win. We didn't do X, Y, and Z. Coach is right. And you know what? When we're, when we're at our very best, this is what we look like. I used to always say, what do we look like when we're at our very best? All right? So if we're not looking like we are at our very best, then you are your habits. So it starts in practice. I mean, it's a, you know, I, I speak to a lot of teams when I go visit them. And, you know, I think you're all your habits. So, you know, like if, if, if you are your habits and then you have crappy practices, you're going to have a crappy game is good, you know, leading up to it. But if you are your habits, if you have, if, if your habits are good and you just so happen you, you miss shots or you other team made shots or whatever, you know, I can live with that. But if you go into a game and you, you lose your habits, and lose your habits means, Someone gets selfish. That's not part of who we are. You know, someone takes a playoff. Uh, someone someone uh, doesn't close out the manner in which we, we have. Someone's not, you know, communicating. Someone's not not really locked into the scouting report. That's going to cost you game. So, like, having someone as your leadership group say, hey, they were not locked up. Coach, right. Here's where we lost the game. We were in our habits. And, hey, we – Whomever it is, Joey, let me tell you something. You're better than that. We need you better than that. And, you know, we're counting on you. You, 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 you let us down. I mean, it's no different than having a good leader of a guy's, you know, I, you know, I think the best teammates are the guys, if a guy gets off track, he's afraid to grab a guy and bring, put, bring him on track. And, I mean, whether it's off the court or on the court, where the guy, guy's not going to class, grab his ass and get him to class. Because, you know, that, that's, in the end, that's going to affect all of us. So, but right now, college athletics has a whole new problem because in that locker room, you have NIL. Mm-hmm. And well, let's that's, get that's into an that obstacle in, in itself. <laughs> that's, that's a different conversation we'll have a little bit later, if you don't mind. But um, the, uh, you mentioned before, like, uh, you know, in terms of deciding what systems to use or what to do as a, as a coach, the best teams in your league should help dictate that because you want to beat them and then obviously play to your strengths. But you also mentioned NBA analytics and different types of trends. Is it really hard for a coach to be able to resist trends nowadays, especially in the college game as it relates to recruiting and what different players might think they want? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, but then again, you know, I, like I did a Virginia game the other day. You know, everyone kills Tony Bennett on the system, yet his guys go into the league and play great. And they, win. So, and they win and they go to winning teams, you know, and they help teams win, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone wants to be positionless, you know, that sounds great. 
And I, you know what I tell you? I say, you know what? The league is, it might be positionless, but the league is illegal role players. So who are you and how do you win individually? What will you like? Uh, you know, every time I set my guys to Portsmouth or to work out for NBA teams, I'd say, make sure you show them what they can, you can do, not what you can't do. And I think that's, so I would answer that by saying, college basketball, you, you know what? Yeah, you're trying to develop players. And then you can develop players every single day in practice. But in the end, you're trying to win games. Absolutely. And, and winning games is about putting guys in position to play their strengths. And winning games is players giving up a little bit of their ego to help their, the group, the team win. So I would say, you know what? We're going to spend a ton of time in helping you develop individually. But when that light goes on, all right, and our system's in place, all right, you're going to show people what you can do, not what you can't do. And, you know, and, and you earn the right to shoot three-point shots. You know, like, you want to show people shoot three-point shots, you're a 20% three-point shooter, and, and here's, here's the documentation. We'll chart every single shot in practice. We'll chart every single drill. Here's the fact. Oh, your mom called. Well, first of all, I don't talk to uh, you know parents about X's and O's, academics, socially, anything else like that. Because if you talk to parents about someone's role, then someone else's child is going to come in a conversation. That's just not fair because that parent is there to defend their child. So, but yeah, I, I look. We worked a ton of time on on player development, skill work. But in the end, when that when the ball goes up for a game, it's about how can we put ourselves in position to be successful? And the best way we can is for everyone to embrace their role. No differently than what every NBA team does. See, because the league's a league of role players. I got Dorian Finney-Smith. He just signed a gazillion-dollar contract because he moves the ball, he defends, he rebounds, uh, and, you know, he's a great teammate. I had Brian Russell stay in the league 12 years. I had Lisa Sarah stay in the league 12 years. All right? They fit fit. They fit roles. I had Malcolm Delaney play in the NBA and make a ton of money in Europe. Deron Washington make a ton of money in Europe. You know, uh, you know, you know. It, it really comes down to we're here to win games. Uh, we're here to develop young people. We're here to make sure that they have a chance to get a degree and earn their degree so that they can, we we can help them build a bridge to cross when they're done playing, win games, and then develop them as people and as players and but in the end i'm not gonna I, I don't think you should you know play positionless basketball if you don't have positionless players i don't care what the analytics say because the guys that play in the nba that's the most exclusive club in the world and i know everyone's oh no well you know what what does your team tell you and how like what's the best way i put the funny thing is i played position i played with two point guards malcolm bloody eric green xavier Dudell, jamon gordon forever because so I didn't want to turn the ball over. So I called the ball guards. They could play, make, and score. I played with two, six, seven wing guys that were interchangeable. I didn't know I was being positionless. I just, those are the guys I could recruit. And I played with, you know, one big guy that could play off, you know, post-ups, penetration. And uh, my best players took two-thirds of the shots. <laughs> you know, because of the other guys, you know, You'll get shots because those two guys are so good. They'll get you shots. Be ready. And, and you know, I, I, I just – and we're going to develop all of you. But I, I, I think that's the problem. Everyone gets so caught up in the fashion of sport instead of, like, people want winning players. P.J. Tucker, 
Look what he scored in college. Look at the, you know, Kentucky's national championship team. Look at, you know, it, it's like winning players. I mean, if you, you look around the country and you see, you know, see guys step up and, and have great NBA careers because they fit a role. And why, so why, so if they can fit a role there, why wouldn't you want them to fit a role in your team? It's great. And obviously this all applies to high school coaches as well oh, in terms 100%. of that, because their, their challenges are even more, aren't they? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Coach your team, put your guys in position to play their strengths, develop relationships with them, get them to play hard, get them to like each other, get them to trust the hows and whys of what you're doing. Um, have fun with it, but also have a standard. And the standard is a standard. I mean, that's just, you know, when the day you give into the standards, the day you don't have a standard. Absolutely. And, uh, Coach, you've been in the game for 30 30- plus years in different roles and uh, in analyzing the modern version of college basketball in 2022, what are some things that really stand out to you that you really enjoy about the modern game in 2022? The kids are great. Majority of the young people that play are, you know, they're really, really nice young men. Uh, They're more worldly. They, you know, they've been all over the place playing. They've played with different groups. They obviously have greater relationships with each other through social media and through everything that surrounds the world today. Uh, you know, so, I mean, like, you know, to me, the quality of young person playing uh, is great. Uh, the negatives are that everyone thinks the road to the NBA is a rite of passage as opposed to uh, being part of the most exclusive club. And they lose track of the most important thing is using basketball as a vehicle to build a bridge, to gain an education, to have a life. Great, you can go to Europe. And go, oh, you don't make it, you can just go to Europe. The problem is money in Europe's dried up. My brother's coaching Europe for 20 years. I mean, it's it's not the money it was. And you know what? If you're not good in Europe, you don't help your team win, you get sent home without a check. Uh, like a big concern I have is we've got this NIL going on, and you've got guys making $400,000 in NIL. And when that's over with, because that name on the front of the jersey is no longer part of it, because NILs pay for play now anyway, uh, then they're going over to Europe for $60,000. But those checks every month are a little different than the 400000 a year. <laughs> right? and, I re- and I really worry about that, one, do you have your degree? And number two, the mental health aspect. We talk about mental health all the time, but we never talk about it in relation to NIL. And that fruit awakening of going from point A to the G League even in two-way or to Europe for $70,000. Uh, and then you have come back and where do you go from there? Because you didn't take care of the money that you made here. Uh, that's one of my concerns about the unrealistic uh, environment that we create through NIL. Because again, it's not NIL. We, what we should do is have two-year contracts. Mm. You know, two-year contracts and control the transfer portal. Two-year contracts, uh, you 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 know, you're still going to keep the players around that aren't like you know. We saw all these big guys come back this past year, which was great because they saw there wasn't a path. I mean, if I was Oscar Sheboy, I'd come back again next year. That's just me, you know. I mean, but like he's making real nil, all right? He can sell anything, but we see these big guys come back. Uh, haven't seen as many wings. Uh, Kendrick Davis probably the one guy that jumps out, the point guard at Memphis. He came back. He probably would have been a second round draft choice, maybe, or a two way dude. Um, you know, there's some other guys like that, but, uh, you know, just, that, just on that two way contract, just on that two way contract coach, does that apply to the whole roster? 
because we also know one of the other problems is certain coaches sometimes want to get rid of players. So it's not just about the players staying. It's about now, does that two-year contract apply to whoever you sign? They stay there for yeah. two years. That whole thing about people running running players out is the most over, overrated narrative in, 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 in coaching. That That's a BS. I mean, it, very few guys run dudes out. I mean, guys don't even use all 13 scholarships now. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't keep 13 guys happy. I mean, look at John Shar. He's got 10 guys, 10 good players. He's doing a really good job. Hard to keep those ten dudes happy because they have all ten of them have unrealistic expectation on you know how easy it is to get to the next level. So I mean, and they're all nice kids. I mean, really nice kids, but they still have under and everyone around them, the static around them. You're going to see a record number of, of young people go home for winter break and not come back and transfer. I really believe that. Uh, you look what's happening in football right now. But yeah, the two-way contract to me gets the transfer portal under control. But name me name me a sport, soccer, baseball, bat, uh, NBA, NFL that has free agency year to year, where every single person is a free agent. Eventually, we're going to lose our 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 affiliation uh, because so many people. I mean, like. And I understand supply and demand, and you know value and all that. Well, I, I'm, I have no problem with people making money off name, image, likeness. Uh, but we've got to find a way to, you know, you also have to learn how, you know, not to just run from issues, and you, you got to allow yourself to grow and mature, and understand things are not as easy as, as they look. Like every high school kid watches TV and thinks college basketball is easy, and then they get there, and it's like, whoa. And this is not EYBL. This is not the gauntlet. You know, this is game planning and taking away what you do well and playing with other good players and feeling how to digest the scouting report and traveling in school and weight room. And I mean, there's just a lot to it. And, uh, but I think we had contracts. And again, there's a lot to figure that out because collective bargaining and things like that. I just think we've got to find a way to get the portal under control uh, as much for the young people as, as it is for, for the schools. I mean, are we going to have guys not graduating, more people not graduating? Uh, you know, we got all these leagues, overtime elite, NBA academies, and, this, and all those things sound great, except those kids go there instead of going to college. And then when they don't make it, because chances of making are probably aren't great, to be honest with you, because everyone thinks they're going to be in the league. Where do they go back to? Yet if they go to college for one year, they got a place to go back to. Where do those kids go back to? Are we going to have a generation of kids that at the end of those four or five years, if they don't make it, aren't part of anything? Where's their support system? See, I look at this thing as a bigger picture. Of we've lost track of the value of education. We've lost track of really helping mentor and build bridges for these young people to grow, develop for the next 40 or 50 years of their lives. We're so locked into the point, you know, 0.05% that might have a chance that we've lost because everyone thinks they're in that percentage that we lost track of the 99% that end up making bad decisions. Like we look at football, see, see the number of football kids that put their name in the portal and never ended up having a scholarship coming out of it. I mean, think about the number of those kids that threw away an education. I mean, so I, I just look at it as more a more global issue of we have to still get back to the idea of educating 
and helping these young people be employable at the end of their college experience. And maybe that's too Pollyanna. Maybe that's, people say, oh, you don't get it. You're an old man. You're... No, I just, I want to see young people be successful. Well, I agree with you. I mean, we, I, I hope we all agree that like we want young people to have the best possible experience so that they can become the best version of themselves beyond college. Yeah. And that, yeah. th- that's a no brainer. So transfer portal NIL, now they're feeding each other. Are there any other aspects of college basketball that uh, maybe frustrate you that we should look at, uh, you know, trying to push for change? I think we should have summer basketball. Hmm. I think, you know, those eight weeks, uh, uh, John Calipari and I talk about this all the time. We have those eight weeks where you allowed your players. I think at any time within that eight weeks, you should be able to get, play two games. And maybe let your assistant coaches coach them. Use it for NIL. Play the games, get an outside group to produce the games. You know, kind of like when we went to Windsor. Boom, you know, we could use it, you know, for NIL. You know, get, you know, negotiate it, get a piece of it, do a clinic, do a re- reading program, do a, you know, uh, you know, do, do something that now you can raise money so that all those players could make some money. But you have those eight weeks. So I'm not asking for more than eight weeks. All I'm asking is right, one week and get four teams together. You play two double headers. You play on Thursday, Saturday. You play on Friday, Sunday, whatever you want to do. Or you can play back to back days. Uh, you find a location. You, I'm sure some streaming service will pay for it. You know, you put it in a venue that, you know, has 3,000 seats that, you know, people want to see it. You promote it. You see what how successful the TBT has been. You see how successful the NBA Summer League is. Uh, we've got to find a way to make our sport a 12-month sport like football is. You know, we can't. People say, well, you, you shouldn't start the season until after the football season. No, what we need is, is promote our, our sport. Just because people are watching college football and NFL doesn't mean they, we can't still promote basketball. So, I mean, starting of the season, like, oh, get rid of Feast Week. Oh, you've got great matchups in Feast Week. We'll promote them. We need to promote them. We need to embrace these great matchups. I mean, like, we have great games, you know, all all year. Uh, so, I, you know, I'd like to see that happen. Uh, I do think we're going to end up with five or six or seven leagues. Uh, and everyone's going to have a chance to play in the NCAA tournament, but I think it's going to be impacted. Uh, I think the, the automatic bids group of those teams will probably, those leagues will play off, have a playoff. And the eight winners will end up moving into the NCAA tournament bracket. They'll be in the tournament, but they'll be, you know, they'll play in the playing games to get to the bracket. Because when you have leagues that have 20 and 25 teams in them and two divisions, you know, you're going to have more teams that are going to go to the tournament, but those leagues. Uh, but summer basketball, I think, is, is, is really uh, something that's, that's worthwhile, uh, kind of our version of the spring game, maybe. Uh, I think that would be really, really good. Um, well, that's an interesting yeah. thing because I've heard a lot of college coaches talk to me about how difficult it is in the summer to build, you know, individual development, team development, and then have nothing at the end of it. So to me, yeah. that makes sense in terms of what you're saying and what that becomes. I don't know. Uh, I'm also curious, just from your perspective, do you think basketball across the world should have a uniform set of rules? Um, you know, again, moving more towards FIBA possibly in the college game, or is it okay to have this separate identity? Uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing that. I mean, I, I don't think we should, you know, I mean, I, most of my guys disagree. But I don't think we should go to a 24-second clock college basketball. Yeah, I don't think our players are good enough, to be honest with you. And, like, like I look at my 
Virginia Tech teams. You know, we don't beat Duke and Carolina a bunch of times and Maryland when they were great and win at Kansas if we're playing NBA rules. But we we could find some ways to muddy the game up and and win, you know, because we can impose our identity on the game. It goes back to build a system that gives you a chance to be the best teams in your league. Uh, everyone doesn't have to play the same way. That's the problem. Is everyone everyone tries to play the same way now. I mean, yet the teams that are winning right now, Purdue don't play like everyone else. Kansas don't play like everyone else. They actually move the ball, move people, set some ball screens, but not as many as that people. Connecticut doesn't play like everyone else. It's amazing. Teams that move the ball, move people, and don't get basically held hostage to, uh, you know, playing ball screen motion or 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 you know, false motion to a spread middle ball screen that everyone knows is coming in a short clock. They're like, look at Virginia. They continue to run their offense to the end of the possession, and they they still find a way to get a good shot instead of backing it out the last ten seconds and restarting their offense. So imagine how with a 24-second clock, how that would be for us. Now, obviously, people would play a little faster. Uh, yeah, the fever rules would be interesting. I like the idea of widening the lane. I think the clock would be would be fine. Uh, you know, I'd like to see us advance the ball to the last two minutes of the game to like the NBA does. I do think that would create more interesting and exciting ends. We saw what Hubert Davis did the other day, like throwing at the half court and then ducking in on the weak side, Pete Nance, for that skip over the top, and that we'd have more of those. Uh, I think I, I agree. Advancing the ball under two minutes would add so much more entertainment to the game. Just it just makes it so much more interesting. Hey, and I, I think we should mess around preseason with the Elam ending. Okay, I was going to ask you, know, you about the Elam ending. Yeah, I mean, just let's 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 look at it. I mean, college basketball. Let's look at it. it what it does is the end of the game. People don't understand it's a target score. We got to figure it out how it computes the college game. But so with four minutes left in the game. Uh, the leading team gets a target score, a number they have to get to. The other team that's trailing, so they're trailing by 10 points, it's the target score plus 10 points. What it does is at the end of the game, instead of fouling, you got to get good possessions defensively and get a good shot. And offensively, you got to decide. you want to go right at it and shoot a bunch of threes or do you want to attack and get downhill because, you know, you get in a bonus at the end of that. It's one free throw in the ball, so you want to be aggressive. There's a lot of coaching that goes into it. It's It's fun. Uh, you know, I've been part of it with the TBT for three, four years. It's it, the end of the games are really, really interesting. That puts a lot of pressure on the game, puts a lot of pressure on the officials. Uh, so I think that 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 would be an interesting thing just to look at, maybe in our in our feast week games. I love it, you know, Coach. Uh, CBL, the Canadian League's been doing it. Uh, the G League experimented with it this year, I think, for the first time in their showcase. I, I love it because it creates uh, interest and intrigue at the end of all games, basically, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. And, and a lot of strategy. And mm-hmm. a lot of strategy. Like, when do you get the timeout? You you got the lead. You you get the ball. You get the timeout because now all of a sudden you got the lead and the ball. So that's, you know, say if seven, the seven points was your target score, you know, you could make it a, really, if you get, you run a great play, you could be a five point game, you know, before the other team gets the ball. You know, so the, the, you know, the, there's a lot of fun things to it. And, uh, you know, you got to look at, do probably study some data, but, um, you know, I, I think that's important. I think college ball should go to quarters. I mean, I don't know why we're you know, too, we're we're held to playing two halves. I mean, it, just go to quarters and eh? make it easier for TV. I think we, we it would make the free throw situation might be enhanced by you know by not shooting as many free throws, being in the bonus forever. Uh, I think it would really help. 
That's big time, coach. I mean, that's that was the biggest advantage of FIBA rules is that obviously you eliminate the bonus, you know, type yeah. of situation. Every quarter, it's it's wiped clean and start over. And yeah. uh, nobody yeah. wants to watch a ton of free throws, do we? <laughs> no, 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 for sure. Especially my teams, I couldn't shoot them. But, uh, you know, <laughs> well, that's but a I, different so thing. I, yeah, but no, but I I, th- I just think we've got to try it in. And Pat Boyle, I know he he's a dear friend and on the rules committee. And I I, can, I actually said that. You know, I, I can do one or two things. I advance in the ball. And he said, well, you know, it, it's a rule that, you know, gives the offense too much of an advantage. Well, every rule we make gives the offense advantage. Freedom of movement is giving the offense advantage. Protecting the shooters gives the offensive advantage. I mean, every rule made is going to – so, I mean, like – but it's the same for both teams. You know, both teams can advance it. So it's a difference. So it's the same for both teams. And – uh you know, I just think we've got to continue to make, you know, understand that entertainment is part of it. I was just going to say that entertainment's part of it. So definitely like to enhance the end of game situation and to give teams a chance or to just create more exciting situations at the end of the game is always a positive in that sense. And uh, I, I would love to see all those changes. And, uh, you know, and again, even the 24 second clock is about creating more offensive possessions. Uh, what is your feeling on shot clocks then at the high school level? I, I would not like to see a 24 second clock uh, in, the, in for sure in high school. I think 30 second clock would be great in high school. I I, 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 I think that'd be good. It could it would teach guys to process and think and play on the run, which I think is a good thing. Uh, you know, I think that 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 would be a a, a good 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 decision. I, I 24 second clock, I think it would be a little much. It'd be such an advantage for a more talented team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you know, we more talk things probably going to win anyway. It's almost like we always talk about recruiting. We make these things and say, you know, they legislate rules and say, well, it's got to be equal to everyone. Well, nothing's equal to everyone. I was Virginia Tech. I was in the ACC. I, I can tell you, we didn't travel like like Duke. We didn't fly in the planes that Duke flew in. I mean, I didn't travel in you know in, in uh, private planes to go recruiting. I mean, you can't legislate a level playing field. You just can't. Coach, this has been an amazing conversation. I mean, your passion shines through, and I know I know you love the game, and uh, just appreciate all you do for basketball and for basketball coaches specifically. Yeah, look, I love the game. I love the, everything about our game, and uh, you know, we got to continue to understand it's it's for these young people, uh, and we got to pass on our, our love and our passion for the game, and also help them, you know, prioritize the things that are most important, and uh, and that's the thing that that hurts me is that you know as and I was—I mean, I don't perceive myself as an educator. I surely don't perceive myself as a journalist, but I perceive myself as someone that really cares about young people. And and we've got to continue to help build bridges for these young guys and educate them on the value of education, and uh, so that they can cross a bridge. Because when they cross that bridge, they're not just bringing themselves over that bridge; you're bringing probably their families, their future families, along with them. So uh, I think this is a great platform to, to share ideas and. Uh, you know, it's a great game, and uh, we just got to continue to uh, get people involved in our game that first and foremost care about the young people that play it, even if that means being unpopular by saying some things that they don't want to hear because it's just like parenting. You tell your kids the stove's hot. Why do you tell your kids the stove's hot? Because you love them. And uh, sometimes you can't be afraid to tell the, the young people just, hey, the reason we're doing what we're doing, why we're emphasizing what we're emphasizing is because it's not just today, you know, it's it's the future that we want to see you cross that bridge and be this, as successful as you can be in life. 
Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about BasketballMersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our Basketball Immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank you.